Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Today's going to be a little bit of a, a different Sunday. Last week, we, uh, we finished the Gospel of Matthew. We entered the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. And we saw that Jesus has now ascended to heaven. Uh, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father has promised, is about to come. And the Gospel is about to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, I said this morning's going to be a little bit of difference, and what I mean by that is we are jumping into the first 12 chapters, that's right, 12 chapters in the book of Acts. That sounds like a challenge, doesn't it? And we're going to need to buckle up. A lot is happening this morning. We're going to see God's plan to reach the world. The first thing that we know about God, God is a builder. In the beginning, God created all things heaven and earth, the universe. He created all things, speaking them into existence. Colossians tells us that Jesus, by him and for him, through him, that that he created and sustains all things. By the word of his power, the world is held together. The very essence and and nature of, of God, the first act that we know of Jesus is he was a builder. We see this in the beginning in Genesis when God made mankind. When he made Adam, the first man, he made Adam in the same way that a a potter would, would would shape and mold clay, fashioning Adam together. And then with Eve, the word is is built. See, God took a a rib from Adam, the first man, and, and the English translation says made, but the Hebrew word is the word built, that God built woman from man. We see this theme throughout the Old Testament as God is building unto himself a people group, setting them apart as a nation unto the rest of the world. So it's not a coincidence when we get to the Gospels and we see the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, being born to the son of a carpenter. The very little that we know about Joseph, he's, he's not a fisherman, he's not a shepherd, he's not a farmer, a priest, a politician, he's, he's a carpenter. That means for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus, he's pounding nails. He is cutting boards. He is laying block. As soon as he was old enough as a young boy to pick up a broom, I mean, Jesus is sweeping sawdust to help out his family's business. Can you imagine living in the city of Nazareth and and, and Jesus and his family is working on and building your house? But then around the age of 30, Jesus changed careers because Jesus is more than a carpenter. Jesus went from building homes to now building into the lives of people, people who were broken and lost, hurting. Jesus came alongside, he fixed, he restored, he repaired, he renewed, he recreated, giving a second chance on life. One of these people, his name was Peter. Here Jesus made this promise to Peter saying, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. When Jesus said this, as a architect, as a carpenter, when, when Jesus said these words, he's not imagining a, a, a building or a structure with four walls and, and a slanted roof or 
or a flat roof like us. He's not thinking about the parking lot. He's not thinking about those, those little communion cup holders in the seat in front of you. No, he's not thinking about the sign on the road or the name on the side of the wall. Instead, Jesus, when he says, I will build my church, he is envisioning a movement of people, people who will continue his ministry long after he's gone. See, the word church in the New Testament, the word church is never used in reference to buildings or places. It is used exclusively and only to refer to people. People whose lives have been so turned upside down and inside out by the gospel that it has transformed them and changed them that it cannot be contained that these people are going into the ends of the earth proclaiming and declaring the name of Jesus and the work that he does. See, following Jesus is way more than just showing up to some place. It's more than coming and sitting in some building. It's more than just being here at a church. We are a part of God's plan. We are a part of fulfilling Jesus' promise. We belong to God's family. Hey, welcome to the book of Acts. This is the story about God working in the lives of people, people just like us. Grab a copy of your words, open up, your, open up the Bible to, uh, to Acts chapter 1. I know what you're thinking. We have 10 pastors up here. We are covering 12 chapters. When are we going to get out of here? All right, thou shalt not exceed three minutes. We have a new commandment today. As you follow along, I want you to listen just to the story as the story unfolds, the story about Jesus and his gospel going This is about 10 to 15 years of history as the gospel spreads from the center of Jerusalem throughout Judea and throughout Samaria. As you're following along, it might be helpful just to to look at your headings in your Bible and just grasp the flow of what God is doing here with his people. A people in transition. Jesus told the disciples to wait. As they stood there gazing with a mixture of wonder and anxiety, They recalled Christ's instructions, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Everything was changing and most of the disciples had no idea what was coming. They had just experienced several life-changing events in a short amount of time. Peter's denial, Christ's death, earthquakes, unnatural darkness, Judas taking his own life. Christ's resurrection, and now the living Christ ascending to heaven in full view. Questions like, what is happening? And what will happen to us? Were surely occupying their minds, but possibly the most intriguing question was, what do we do now? Could Christ be getting them ready for a new way of living, a people in transition? Then voices from two men in white snapped them back to reality. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So now the the startled disciples returned to the upper room and Acts 1.14 says, continued with one accord in prayer and supplication and waited. During this time, a discussion arose about the question of what had happened to Judas Iscariot. 
Peter, in an effort to bring clarity to the question, recalled divine scripture from the book of Psalms and encouraged the others with them. From Psalm 41, 9, he described that it had to happen this way so that scripture might be fulfilled. From Psalm 109, 8, he cited that we must fill the office that Judas had vacated. Knowing that Judas' replacement had to be someone who had followed Christ from the baptism of John until the ascension of Christ, they proposed a choice between two men, Joseph and Matthias. The final verse of the chapter tells us that by casting lots, they determined that Matthias was to replace Judas. What we are going to do and where we are going to go are questions to which we can all relate. Everyone at some point in their lives comes to a crossroads, a change of life. We must take our transitional situations to the Lord in prayer, searching the scripture, trust him for direction, just like his followers in Jerusalem. These disciples and followers were about to make a major transition in how they lived their lives but the one they had followed was gone. Someone was coming that would radically change their way of life. Would they be ready for this transition? A people empowered. Picture the scene. 120 of God's people, witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, are gathered together in a small room in Jerusalem, praying together and waiting. What are they praying for? What are they waiting for? Well, the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Acts 1.5 and Acts 1.8. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then it happens. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. For the first time in all of redemptive history, the Spirit of God is taking up permanent residence in the people of God, and everything changes. They burst out of the room and into the city streets, proclaiming the mighty works of God and bearing witness to the good news of Jesus' triumph over sin and death. The people are amazed and ask, what does this mean? And then Peter rises to address the crowd. Now remember, the last time we saw Peter was on the night of Jesus' betrayal, where he denied knowing Jesus three times for fear of the consequences. This same Peter stands in the center of the very city where Jesus was crucified only 50 days earlier and boldly proclaims the life, death, and resurrection of his Lord and Savior from the scriptures. What happened to Peter? Acts chapter 2 verse 4 happened to Peter. He was filled with the Spirit and empowered for ministry. The people hear the gospel and cry out, well, what must we do to be saved? Peter's reply is simple. Acts 2, 38 through 39. Repent 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus, and you too will be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a faithful and fruitful life. God's people, equipped with God's word, empowered by God's spirit. The stage is set for the gospel to advance amongst the nations and for the glory of God to be magnified amongst all the peoples of the earth. A people together. Is the early church perfect? Of course not. There's no such thing as the perfect church. Not now, not next to And as we'll see in later chapters, the first century church, like any church, is far from perfect. We pick up in Acts 2.41, where it tells us that after Peter's sermon, over 3,000 men plus women and children were added to God's church. Sharing this common bond of salvation, these new Christians are drawn to each other. Collectively and individually filled with God's spirit, The first members meet together daily, studying doctrine, fellowshipping, worshiping, and praying. How tight were the early believers? Acts 2, 44 and 45 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This notion of communal living was repeated in Acts 4, 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So, was there really one big common pot of money that was being distributed evenly to all? Well, not exactly. The situation in Jerusalem is somewhat unique. Thousands of travelers that had been saved after Peter's message wished to stay longer to get grounded in their new faith. They need hospitality and financial assistance. Local church members open their homes and their pocketbooks to help the needy. Some even sell land and donate the proceeds. It's important to note that these actions are not done out of compulsion. Instead, everything was done willingly. In every way imaginable, these early Christians take part in voluntary acts of generosity, and this kind of selfish behavior seems to have been specific to the early church in Jerusalem. Well, getting along is easy when life is good. But what happens when first signs of trouble appear? At this point in the history of the early church, Nothing, not even persecution from the outside of the church, disrupts the unity among the early believers. In fact, God uses the first opposition to the church in Acts 3, the imprisonment of the apostles Peter and John, for healing a crippled beggar in the name of Jesus Christ and for proclaiming that there is salvation in no one else to draw the persecuted believers even closer together and to further embolden them 
to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. The uncommon community and sense of togetherness among the members of the early church is characterized by an unspeakable joy that flows out of a right relationship with God. And it manifests itself in an abounding love for God and for his people. Consequently, God pours out his blessing on these early Christians and grants them favor in the eyes of the outside world. Acts 2.47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, Many of those who had heard the word believed. God's people, filled with God's spirit, fellowshipping and fulfilling God's mission all together. A people pressed, but not everyone among the church was of one heart and one soul. We see a couple that decides to try to serve both God and money. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira take upon them a profession of faith, and they make a fair show of it, but then lie to God by pretending to, take, to give all of the proceeds from selling their land to the Lord, selling their land to the Lord, when in fact they kept hidden a portion of it. Their sin created a crack in the unity within the church, and now a people together faced an internal pressing. So how would this divisive spirit be addressed? Peter confronted them both, and God judged them instantly and severely. And in verse 11, it states, And fear came upon the church, upon all who heard of these things. A people pressed faced the internal opposition by addressing the sin within and restoring the unity. But the continuing power of the Lord in the church was shown by signs and wonders done among the people. The miracles the, pro the apostles performed proved their divine mission and the church was of one accord. But then the church faced an external pressing Acts chapter 5, 17, for the high priest rose up with jealousy and arrested the apostles, placing them in jail. However, God was with them, because during the night, an angel of the Lord came and released them to continue to proclaim the words of life. Acts 5, 21 states that instead of fleeing and hiding, the apostles went to the temple and preached the gospel. Their persistence in speaking the words of life brought them again in, the, in front of the authorities who charged them to no longer preach the gospel. They responded, we must obey God rather than men. This enraged the authorities who wanted to kill them, but after taking counsel, they beat them, they threatened them, and they released them. 
And amazingly, however, the apostles left the council in verse 41 and state rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and in homes, the apostles continued to preach and teach the gospel. A people pressed, faced the external opposition with joy and boldly continued preaching the good news of Jesus. A people led. At this time, when the apostles were emboldened by the Holy Spirit to stand up to the same religious leaders who opposed Jesus and pressed for his crucifixion, more people than ever were putting their faith in Jesus. The church was growing. It was in this context that a particular cultural segment of this new faith family was being left out. Just a few chapters ago, we learned that the new believers were mutually caring for one another. Some had needs, others had the ability to meet those needs. And in this case, a group of widows who spoke Greek rather than the more common Aramaic was being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So as a solution to the situation, the apostles gave direction to the local church leaders to begin pushing ministry out to capable people who could lead in the caring for these widows so that the apostles could continue their daily bold proclamation of the good news of Jesus. So seven men were chosen, among whom was Stephen. Acts 6.5 calls Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. As a result of multiplied ministry leaders, Acts 6 goes on to say that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and even a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. God was at work growing his church despite the vehement physical opposition of the religious leaders who did not recognize Jesus as the true Messiah. Stephen, this man chosen to lead his faith family, by serving food to widows, was also doing such great wonders among the people, it got him noticed by those who opposed Jesus. They could not compete with Stephen's wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, so they had to instigate those who would lie about him, just as they had done with Jesus. The whole council of these spiritually blind religious leaders including the high priest, could see the physical evidence that the influence of God was upon Stephen. The closing words of Acts 6 say this, his face was like the face of an angel. So empowered by God, Stephen gave his defense to the council, starting with Abraham and recounting how God kept his covenant promises to the Jewish people. He used scripture to point out that God resides in the hearts of those who genuinely love and obey him, not just in the temple. In one final unvarnished indictment, Stephen calls out the council for what they truly are. He called them stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and guilty of murdering the Messiah. 
Well, this was more than they could handle. And they stoned Stephen to death. Stephen, a man chosen to lead in the serving of food to widows, but he also led the church in the bold proclamation of truth. A people scattered. This newly founded church grieves over the loss of Stephen, who was the first of many martyrs to come. But persecution and death is not enough to stop the Holy Spirit from advancing the gospel of Jesus' witnesses through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In fact, we see the gospel going into Samaria and taking its first step towards the ends of the earth in chapter 8. Verse 1 says, Because of the great persecution that arose against the church in Jerusalem, God's people scattered throughout Judea and into Samaria because of a man named Saul. Saul was, verse 3, ravaging the church and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. When Saul thought he was destroying the seed of Christians, God was purposefully scattering his seed throughout the nations. Neither persecution nor relocation can stop the Holy Spirit from spreading the good news of Jesus. A man named Philip comes on the scene. Philip is not an apostle, but just an ordinary Christian who knows the gospel and is unashamed to teach the word of God. He was among those who are scattered, and he finds himself taking refuge in Samaria. What was Philip's role in carrying out the Great Commission to Samaria? Verses 12 to 13 tells us that he, was simply, he simply preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they believed and were baptized, both men and women. And then Philip, this ordinary Christian, is commanded by an angel of the Lord to travel south. Upon his journeys, a man from the African country of Ethiopia meets him along the way. The stage is set. God has providentially brought along Philip's path, a man from a country that needs to hear the gospel. As Philip jogs alongside the Ethiopian's chariot, he notices the scroll of Isaiah sitting on the man's lap. Verses 30 to 31. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip says over the loud trotting of horses. How can I unless someone guides me, says the Ethiopian. So Philip hops into the chariot, sits down beside the man with the word of God open on their laps. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. This man believes, is baptized, and is ready to take the gospel back to his country of Ethiopia, while Philip is once again led by the Spirit to another town. He preaches the gospel to all the towns along the way. In the sovereignty of God, he uses he uses suffering to scatter his people. Though God's people are scattered, this does not stop God's global movement of spreading the good news of Jesus to all nations through ordinary people in extraordinary ways. A people chosen. Well, praise the Lord. The gospel is expanding throughout the region. However, the first two words of Acts 9 verse 1, but Saul force us to recall the ravaging persecution he inflicted on the church in Jerusalem back in 8 verse 3 and awaken us to the sobering reality that Saul is still on the scene, still hating Jesus, and still killing believers. Look at Acts 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Would Saul succeed in his mission? Would he snuff out 
the gospel? Would he destroy the church? Well, friends, the Lord Jesus answers these questions with a resounding no. He appears to a now fully prostrate Saul on the road to Damascus and says in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Saul comes, radically comes face to face with Jesus, and Jesus has the last word. Jesus wins. But the astonishing part of this story is that it was part of God's redemptive plan all along. In fact, the Lord tells the disciple Ananias to go to Saul in verse 15, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul's evil plan is thwarted. God's glorious plan continues. For Saul is chosen by God to carry the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles across the world. So, what happens next? Well, in verse 20, Saul immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. God chooses and transforms Saul from a great persecutor of the gospel to a great proclaimer of the gospel. An instrument belonging to the Lord Jesus. So, a chosen people of God, who are instruments of God, proclaiming the glory of God, and the gospel advances. A people changed. A recurring theme we heard so far is that Acts documents a dramatic change in people's faith. The persecution of the early church described in previous chapters led to the expansion of the church outside Jerusalem to encompass people from other regions. Two such events that spread the gospel beyond its previous borders were opportunities involving Peter, who at the end of chapter 9 healed a paralytic and miraculously resurrected a saintly woman named Tabitha. Both events were used by God to bring large numbers of people in the surrounding Samaritan region to faith in Jesus Christ. Peter's ministry in the Samaritan town of Joppa brought him the realization that Jewish legalism which prevented the inclusion of non-Jews, had to drop away. It marked the beginning of the biggest change the New Testament church would undergo, the admittance of Gentiles into the church. The apostles must have understood from Jesus' final commission that they were to preach the gospel to all nations. But it had not yet been accepted that Gentiles were to be included within the New Testament church. Would Gentiles need to convert to Judaism, or would their faith in Christ alone be enough? Putting aside their centuries-old traditions and permitting non-Jews to join the church would be a difficult mindset to overcome. It took a miraculous vision from God to change Peter and his way of thinking. Acts 10 describes this vision in which Peter is taught to understand the underlying principle that Old Testament ceremonial laws were only temporary and not the divine will for all time. A foundation for unity of Jews and Gentiles within the body of Christ was to be laid. Peter did not doubt the authenticity of the vision. His doubt was concerning the meaning of it. 
Peter is then given the opportunity to provide a simple gospel presentation at the house of Cornelius, who is a Gentile. Peter was finally beginning to understand that the church needed to undergo a change to include people from every nation. Acts 10, verses 35, 34 and 35 says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Scripture tells us that as Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who believed. Christ had given plain indication of it when he ordered them to teach all nations, and yet when Peter himself, who knew, who knew so much of his master's mind, could not understand it until it was revealed here. God himself was opening the door of his church to the entire Gentile world. This change was possible only through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and then continued through the obedient response of Peter through the leading of the Spirit. And our God at work. So Peter returned to Jerusalem where this whole movement started to report back to the church leaders how God had been at work. More specifically, how God had been at work in the Gentiles and the radical confirming way God had moved through his spirit. So Peter tells the same story from chapter 10, but this time to the leaders in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 11 and verse 15. As he began to speak, speaking the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them, Gentiles, just as on us at the beginning. No longer was this good news for mainly Jewish people. It was spreading to the Gentiles. It was spreading to Gentiles in the same only attributable to God kind of way, the same kind of way that they had seen at Pentecost. In verse 18, when, uh, when the church leaders in Jerusalem heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was a huge deal, a massive shift in the way Jewish believers had been thinking. It was an awesome story of God at work in the world and in church leaders' hearts. The leaders in Jerusalem are recognizing God at work in the Gentiles. The gospel is spreading further and wider, and the number of those being saved is growing. Churches are being planted, and now we even see for the first time disciples of Christ being called Christians. Then we see these Christians caring for one another through hard times, there is a unity amongst Jewish and Gentile Christians on display that only can be attributed to a God at work. But this movement of God was not without continued opposition. Herod Agrippa, the king of the area, including Jerusalem at the time, was persecuting and killing Christians and then captured Peter. Peter was even scheduled for execution but in chapter 12, verse 5, we see the church, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See, the, the church had already seen so many faithful God at work moments in their early days that they immediately turned to the exact right place, 
humble prayer to the God who has it all in his control. And so miraculously, God works again and sends an angel to guide Peter out of custody and leads him directly to the church that is right in the middle of their prayer meeting. A humanly impossible jailbreak continues to bolster the faith of the young church in Jerusalem and continues to display a mighty God at work. And chapter 12 ends with a clear demonstration that nothing will stand in the way of our God. Herod, who opposed God's work, is struck down because he did not give glory to God, and he breathed his last. We see in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied, emphasizing that Herod's work is put to an end, but the work of God cannot be stopped. These people, this beginning of God's church, a people in transition, a people empowered, a people together, a a people pressed, led, scattered, chosen, and changed, all because and for the glory of our big God and the furthering of his kingdom. This is our awesome God at work. Well, the fact that you are here today proves God's faithfulness, that Jesus has kept his promise to be building his church. I said earlier, Acts 1 through 12 is about 10 to 15 years of history, but for the last 2,000 years, the ministry of Jesus has continued. The message has not stopped. The mission is not lost, that we are here today based on what God has been doing in the lives of people, spreading the gospel that could not be contained, working in the lives of people, getting a hold of them and turning them inside up, upside down, taking the gospel through streets and homes, crossing mountains and oceans, going from city to city to city, reaching families, whole generations, entire civilizations for 2,000 years, preaching the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, died on a cross, was buried in a tomb. But three days later, that stone was rolled away, that Jesus could not be contained in the grave, that Jesus walked out fully vindicated by His righteousness, that He has restored what sin has ruined. The very first act of Jesus was building, was creating the heavens and the earth. Jesus has promised he will come back and one day he will rebuild, recreate, make a new heaven and earth. But until then, we're waiting. We are waiting in the middle of the greatest building project ever where God is building his church, building people people like us. This is the story of Acts. Well, two things. Coming up next week, you want to be back here as Pastor Doug picks up the the story of Acts and continuing in chapter 12, going into chapter 13, continuing to see the gospel spread unto the ends of the earth. And two weeks from tonight, we'll be starting small groups back up. And Here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing our first ever sermon-based small group study. So we're going to be merging together what what God is doing here on Sunday mornings and the ministry and the message with what's happening in small groups. 
This is how it's going to work. Next Sunday, pick up, uh, if you're in small groups, pick up a copy of an Acts study journal for $5 in the office. And then during the week, you're going to be reading through uh, a passage and, and taking notes. It's designed as a journal, so you can be writing comments, writing questions, studying this passage on your own. And then you're going to come on Sunday and hear that same passage now preached. And the sermon's going to give us a shared experience. It's going to bring us some clarity, unite us, bring us together in a common direction. And then we're going to send you back to your small group. So now you have have studied the passage on your own during the week. You've heard the message preached. And now you're going to go back to your small group to reinforce it, to discuss it, to answer some questions and apply it together as a group. We're going to have observation happening on your own during the week, interpretation on Sunday morning, and then application as a small group. I'm telling you, if you are not in small groups, you're going to want to be a part of this. Well, Harvest, we want to be a place, we want to be a people where God is working, where God is stirring in our lives, changing and transforming us to look and become more and more like Him. We want to be a people that are growing deeper in our love and our relationship with the Lord and with one another. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story. Lord, these are not just words on a page. Lord, this is a a part of your work, a part of the fabric of of your narrative, your plan for reaching the ends of the earth. That God, for whatever reason, Lord, you use people, people like us, to advance your kingdom, to advance your message, to continue your mission. Lord, I pray that this series in the book of Acts would, would get a hold of us in a way Lord, that, that we would meet you in a, in a personal way, that we would be compelled to be growing in our faith, not just our knowledge, but Lord, our obedience of you, that we would be, Lord, not contained, that we would be taking this same message, that we would be reaching our family, Lord, our schools, our, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, Lord, with the message of, of your love and the hope of the gospel. God, may you be taking your word, working it in our lives producing a change and effect that happens in us, Lord, that, Lord, it's, it's reaching the ends of the earth. Lord, be working in us. Lord, be working through us. Empower us as your people, with your spirit, with your word. God, make us more and more like you, we pray. Amen.